The first reading comes from Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 25. This can be found on page 1131 of your Bibles and on the screen in front of you. Romans chapter 4, being at thir- verse 13. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that we may by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, Just as it's been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to suggest to you that there's one theme at least which runs through these few verses from Mark and it's commitment. Jesus makes a commitment to to his father to go to the cross to die and to be raised from the dead. But then he addresses us, the crowd, and makes clear what sort of commitment they're to make. A commitment's so easy to make sometimes in certain contexts. A young man sent a Valentine card recently. He wrote inside, I love you, my darling. I could climb the highest mountain for you. I could cross the hottest desert. I could swim the deepest ocean. P.S. See you on Thursday if it doesn't rain. <laughs> Some commitments are easy to say and very difficult to do. Anyway, these are the words of Jesus. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, 
he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have the things of God in mind, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to lose, sorry, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Rosie, I loved the passion in your praying. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I wish I heard it every time I went around different churches. And in order to improve my preaching, come out the front and pray for me now, would you? Wasn't it wonderful, everybody, to hear passion? Passion. That's what we need. We need passionate praying. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. That's it. Holy Spirit, thank you so much for Nigel. And we pray, Holy Spirit, you would come on him now. You would anoint him. We pray your passion to flow through what he's saying, Lord. And would you speak to our hearts? Would you speak to our minds? And would we not be the same when we walk out the door after Amen. he's spoken Amen. and after we have met with you in Jesus' name? Amen. Thank you, Rosie. <coughs> <coughs> well, incidents in Jesus' ministry, everybody, can often trigger a fresh teaching. You'll often find that something happens. For example, there was, an there was a situation when um, they were arguing over inheritance money. And a man came up to him and said, will you be the go-between between me and my brother? And, and Jesus said, this is nothing to do with me. And he proceeded to give a, an amazing <clears throat> parable about the rich fool. You remember it? A man who had a wonderful harvest and um, he thought, well, I'll pull down my barns and build bigger and eat, drink, and be merry and enjoy many good years. And that same night, God said to him, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And it was as a result, you see, of something happening. And very often in all his teaching, it emerges from somebody saying something. Now, he's now in Caesarea Philippi, and you'll remember he posed the question, who do men say that I am? And the disciples said, they, some, one of the old prophets or somebody like that. And then he said, who do you say that I am? And he said, Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it was those words which were so key. Because Jesus then went on to say, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected. That he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter then took him aside 
and rebuked him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Peter totally misunderstood Jesus' vocation. He had no concept of a suffering Messiah. Just imagine, everybody, what would have happened if Jesus had fallen for that word from Peter. I tell you, it's almost too awful to contemplate. No saving grace, no expectation of heaven, no hope, no future. That was the situation. That was Peter's offer, to have the easy road. The easy road. Well, now, Jesus addressed Peter in the same way as he addressed Satan. Now, that is the very damning statement. Such was the subtlety and the enormity of the temptation that Peter had placed in his path. Indeed, Peter had become Satan's instrument. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have the mind of, in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And in Matthew he says, you are a stumbling block to me. We need to feel it. Feel it. How powerful it was. Peter was devil-possessed. Peter's outburst, if he did, would have driven a coach and horses through Jesus calling to be the savior of the world. That's how important this is. God's plan would have been crushed. See, Jesus had to deal with his suggestion ruthlessly. There are times when Jesus deals ruthlessly. You see, there would have been no second chances if he'd embarked on that road. Remember the spies in the story in the Old Testament when they sent spies, 12 spies, into the promised land to see it. And and they came back. And 10 of them brought a bad report and two of them brought a good one. Caleb and Joshua brought a good report, but the 10 brought a bad report. And when the people heard it, they all collapsed in a heap. Oh, we can't go in. They're too powerful. They're too strong for us. And the result of all that was 40 years in the wilderness... And you may remember that they tried a second time to go in, a few of them, some of them, and they were beaten back. You see, it was a very important moment. And I tell you, moments are important. And if they're not captured when it happens, it can be lost. And it's sometimes, as we all know, very serious. For example, last week, Malcolm Rifkin and Jack Straw learnt that to their cost. One bad moment ruined their reputation. If Jesus had listened to Peter, the whole edifice would have come crashing down. That's how bad it was. Well, we're all familiar, aren't we, with the easy road Satan loves to keep us on it. 
So different, aren't we, from our Chinese brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters in the Middle East who are dying for their faith. But we love our comforts, don't we? Our comforts and our unwillingness, everybody, to be inconvenienced. It's the West, you see, is all about being convenienced. So I buy two cars instead of one so that my wife and I won't argue about who, who's going to drive the car or whatever. We, we, we have so much that it creates convenience. And then, of course, the more convenience we have, the more we hate being inconvenienced. I can remember when I was vicar of a church up in the Northwest, and we, we had a staff meeting, we planned all the week, and, and then the next morning, Tuesday morning, the secretary would come in and she'd say, there's a funeral come up. I thought, why did that person have to die now? I didn't like being inconvenienced. We'd set our program. But if you look in the New Testament, you will find again and again that so many of the great incidents which you'll remember came as a result of Jesus being inconvenienced. All the time, his ministry was all about inconvenience. Wasn't the cross the biggest of all inconveniences? Many of our brothers and sisters are suffering for their faith today. Nigerians, Somalians, many in the Middle East. Christians are dying. And you know, sometimes I imagine heaven, and I imagine God the Father talking to Jesus. And God the Father saying to Jesus, there are many black martyrs coming in, there are many brown martyrs coming in. There are many yellow martyrs coming in. But where are the white men? Oh, says Jesus, they hate being inconvenienced. We white Christians love the easy road of compromise. Don't we? Let's be honest about it. And Jesus spent so much of his time being inconvenienced. So there's the first point, a stinging rebuke. Secondly, there was a direct challenge. Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. I don't think anybody has interpreted that better than John Stott, and I quote from one of his books, this was the imagery Jesus chose to illustrate the meaning of self-denial. We are always in danger, he said, of trivializing Christian discipleship as if it were no more than adding a veneer of piety to an otherwise secular life. Then, prick the veneer, and there is the same old pagan underneath. 
No. Becoming and being a Christian involves a change so radical that no imagery can do it justice except death and resurrection, dying to the old life of self-centeredness and rising to a new life of holiness and love. It is an utter, utter transformation. And it's very well summed up, you know, in the in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, which I'm going to go through with you in a moment. This is what it says, and all of you, I'm sure, will know it, can say it off by heart. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now I'm going to ask you to say this after me. Galatians 2.20, remember? Right, let's go. I am crucified with Christ. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live in the flesh, in the flesh of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, oh, there it is, everybody. Now, you have a look and see how you measure up to that verse. Galatians 2, 20. Say it. Galatians 2, 20. Terribly important. You see, Christians are called to be set apart. That's the meaning of holiness. It doesn't mean that I walk around with a kind of holy kind of look. I don't think I'd be able to do it even if I tried. It means to be set apart. That's what it means. That's what happened to Israel in the Old Testament. God set them apart. He made them different. And that's what he wants to do with us. He wants to set us apart and make us different. And it means, you know, a willingness to renounce riches and to live a simple lifestyle. It means to be obedient and faithful. So remember that. Thirdly, a lasting legacy. What good is it, Jesus said, for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul, forfeit eternal life? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So, where is your treasure? some ways we come back to where we started is there anything about the rich rich fool which we can identify with for any man or woman who chose, chooses to establish treasure here rather than in heaven the bible would describe as a fool you remember um, some of you here who are my great age, will remember 
1956, when Jim Elliott and those missionaries went into among the Orca Indians. Do you remember? Some of you will remember. And they were slaughtered. Remember that time? Some of you will remember that. Probably the last time, apart from a few dotted down, that white men died for Christ. Back in 1956. I can tell you the date, January the 6th, 1956. They went in and they were slaughtered. And Jim Elliot left behind an amazing legacy. He said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Even if you're worth billions, you will not take one single penny with you when you go. Remember that story of the funeral? And there were big crowds of people and everybody thinking and talking about this great man who just died. And somebody turned to another man and said, how much did he leave? And the man replied, he left everything. That puts it all into perspective. So, how are you going to live your life? You see, most of us are living our lives contentedly in the Western culture with its tinge of Christian values. But the world itself will expose us and does. Richard Dawkins tweaked. I don't tweak. Hasten to add. But Richard Dawkins tweaked, and I read, no doubt joyously, that only 16% of Anglicans have no doubt that God exists. Only one six, 16%, have no doubt. That means, by implication, 84% have doubts in varying degrees. Well, no wonder the Anglican Church is in the mess it's in. If 84% are not quite sure, how can I be effective for God if I'm not quite sure he exists? How can I? I decide to play safe and I keep a foot in both camps. That's what the 84% does. They breeze into church, better just in case he does. But they can't be sure. If, God forbid, I find myself ashamed of Jesus, which I could be if I'm in the 84%, what happens then? So what's the solution? You know, it is so easy. Because I think key moments are so important. Those moments when we keep our mouths shut, when we should have said something or hiding our lights under a bushel, or sending money to a mission when we had it touched on our heart and we thought, no, I need, I need all that money myself. There's all kinds of moments, key moments. And if we're not very careful, they're missed, aren't they? And then we regret it. Because you say, we Christians are so full of regrets. We pile up the regrets and we need God to help us because we never know when the key moment may come. 
Why is it that the Anglican Church is in the mess it's in? Well, I can't help thinking it's partly to do at least with the fact that we don't know the scriptures or the power of God. That's what Jesus said, you'll remember to the Sadducees. You are in error because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. We're in the mess we're in. We're in the situation where we continually miss opportunities because we don't know the scriptures or the power of God. I tell you, we should all be reading the scriptures every day, bringing our lives under the word, letting it imbibe and transform us. Otherwise, the church will be moribund. I tell you, we go to all kinds of different churches. I preach in a different church almost every Sunday, which I enjoy and I have the privilege of doing. But normally I preach 25 people, 20, 25, all demoralized. All have lost their way, or nearly all. That's the situation of the Anglican Church. And in the countryside, I tell you, almost back to paganism. It's dead serious. And if we don't wake up and seize the moment like Jesus seized it when Peter got it all so wrong, and if we keep missing the bus all the time, as so many Christians, including me, are doing, we see our nation go more and more into paganism and godlessness. We acknowledge Jesus as Lord and we sing as Lord. But we must take up our cross to follow him. In order to leave a legacy, I think it's terribly important to leave a good legacy behind. A friend of mine who was a vicar in Birkenhead and he was going to do a funeral visit and he got inside the shop. Now when in Birkenhead they talk straight, they don't go around the mulberry bush and talk nice things and do, talk in diplomatic language. They say it how it is. And uh, this vicar said, well, I'm very sorry that uh, your father's just died. He was a rotter, and we're glad he's gone, they said. Well, you don't want to leave a legacy like that, do you? And yet, what kind of a legacy are we going to leave? I love Elisha. He's an interesting character. I'm looking forward to meeting him in heaven. Aren't you thinking, you know, all these characters? And remember, by the way, when you come to Bible reading, when you meet Habakkuk, he might well say to you, well, what did my book mean to you? And you say, well, I can't even remember where it was in the Old Testament. Won't you be embarrassed? Make sure you read the Bible. And you know, it can never be you can never in the pulpit be really prophetic unless you understand the prophets. Anyway, Elisha, he died. And uh, some years later, we read this. Now, Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once, while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders, so they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. 
When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. Well, can you imagine the funeral cortege as they say, you know, when the Moabite raiders had gone, this man walks out of the tomb. Can you imagine it? You see, he'd been affected by Elisha's life. Will people be affected by your life for years to come, long after you're in heaven? You see, Israel was special. Israel was unique because God acted in amazing ways through Israel. Amazing ways, in all kinds of different ways. And it made the nations round about ask them. And uh, on that occasion when they asked Samson, what is the secret of your strength? And that was a key question because again and again the nations round about could not understand how Israel won and how they always got the victory when they were fulfilling his purposes. And they would say, and that question when they asked Samson, what is the secret of your strength? was in them all the time. They could not understand it. And brothers and sisters, the secret of our strength is Jesus. But if we don't harness him in the power of the Spirit, we'll remain moribund. That's the point. The secret of our strength is Jesus. We are well able to win the battle. But we have to address our willingness to self-denial and surrender to Jesus. Are you willing? Well, that was the challenge he gave them. That is the challenge that comes through that gospel reading today. Are you willing? Am I willing? And I say, Lord, set me on fire with love for you. And by the way, Keep an eye on your legacy. Remember Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Will you remember that? May God help us to be the men and women he's called us to be. Amen. Thank you, Nigel. I wonder what God's been saying to you during this service, because he will have been speaking to you. I'm going to have an opportunity now to respond to God. I'm going to sing a song, and during that song, if God has been saying something to you and you'd like somebody to pray with you, then you can go to the back corner over there where the green chairs are, and somebody will pray with you.